Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Let's give our uh, attentive listening to the reading of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us here uh, to worship you, to confess before you the the truth of who we are and to be comforted uh, for the mercy we receive despite who we are. And now uh, your word that can truly feed us uh, in our souls, in our spirits, and pray that uh, we would indeed uh, feed upon it and be changed by it, be transformed by it. Feed us your word, Lord. Uh, We are listening. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing in our series in the book of Revelation, and we've been uh, covering the the seven letters um, to the churches that make up most of the the first three chapters or so of Revelation. And we're landing on the fifth letter to the church today, and it is the letter to the church in Sardis. Now, in most of the letters we've been looking at in in this series, and this um, series of letters to the seven churches, uh, we found that Jesus had at least something positive uh, to say uh, to each of the churches before he sets out to correct them for their serious error and uh, moral failures. But the letter to the church in Sardis uh, stands out in this, that there is no such praise or compliment. Uh, There is one mention of something that's potentially good, but just as we're about to think, okay, maybe that's a compliment, Jesus says, no, it's, it's actually just something that sounds good on the outside, but in reality, it's devastating. This is... Um, a more concise of the seven letters, and yet the diagnosis that Jesus brings to the church is the most devastating. He says in verse 1, in reputation, you're alive. You're alive. But in reality, you are dead. Okay. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Uh, why does he? Why does he say that? What does he mean by that? Uh, it's as if Jesus is showing them for the very first time an image of their X-ray and revealing something that's quite devastating on the inside, deadly on the inside, something that effectively pronounces them as dead. 
And, and like a good doctor would, he, he uh, tells him the truth about that. And then, thankfully, he does show them a way out of that, a way to come back to life. And in the end, he, he, he wraps up this letter by leaving them with an invitation, an invitation to a confession of a sort. Okay. So first, there's a hard truth, and then a way back to life, and then an invitation to a confession. Okay, these would be the three points we, we look at today. So first, um, the hard truth. What, what does Jesus mean by, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead? The word reputation literally means name. Name. That's the name that others call you by, refer to you by. And so a good name is how others perceive you. Uh, and that would have meant at least two things for the church in Sardis. It would have meant they had a good reputation within the larger societal context, right, from the outside world, and a good reputation within the larger context of the church, all the churches in the region in Asia Minor during this time. It also could imply that this church in Sardis, um, unlike the other churches, were, was, more, was a more successful church. It was perhaps a mega church in the sort of the ancient sense. Um, one that's big enough to have a sort of a regional reputation. What would have led to them having a good reputation in this way? Uh, It's not specified here, but we can imply a few things from what we hear in verse 1 and verse 2. In verse 1, for example, Jesus says, I know your works, right, your works. And then in verse 2, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Right. The repeated mention of works implies that the church in Sardis, the Christians in Sardis, either uh, societally or religiously or both, were busy, were hard at work. They worked a lot. And people recognize hard work, don't they? Right? Uh, that could have been the basis for their good reputation, just their hard work in society in their spiritual community. But why would Jesus say that in God's eyes, it is not complete, or the meaning of that word is wholesome? There's something critical that's missing in the work that they're doing. Why would he say that? Simply put, he's saying that because even if there is a lot of activity on the outside, as it turns out, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's life and health on the inside. And that's perhaps the first piece of hard truth for us to receive here. Jesus is saying you can be physically very active, socially very active, religiously and spiritually very active, and you could have a great reputation with uh, society, with your friends, with coworkers, with classmates, with Christians, with your pastors, have all of that and still have No spiritual pulse underneath. You could, in fact, be spiritually dead as you do all of this. So so it's not something that's at all obvious to the physical eyes, to empirical observation. But nevertheless, it can be true that as you do all these outward things, praise, worship, service, that one can be spiritually dead on the inside. It is possible, uh, in other words, for a self-professing Christian to be what Jesus calls in Matthew 23, whitewashed tombs. Outwardly beautiful, 
but within are full of dead people's bones uh, and all uncleanness. And Jesus was saying that about the Pharisees. The religious people who stressed morality and piety and rightness more than anyone else, uh, the moral police of their day, uh, those who took it upon themselves to referee and critique every wrong and felt entitled to voice every moral outrage. Jesus said of them, those who seem to be the most moral, the, the ones who are most adamant about what's right, inside they're dead and full of dead bones. So, so at this point, what we have to naturally conclude is, unless we reassess and reappraise the value of a good reputation, whether that's a good reputation coming from other people or our own minds, right? Because in a sense, Pharisees just kind of had a good reputation in their own psyche. Um, either, either way, if we don't reassess the value of a good reputation, we can really miss the reality of where we stand before God. And along those lines, we can really miss the reality of where we are as a church. Uh, Jesus says here that there are, in the church, in Sardis, those few who have not soiled their garments. Um, there were a few who lived truly from the inside out. So there was no discrepancy uh, between the external reputation they had and their inward spiritual life. Um, but they were very few, few and far in between. And this means to diagnose the overall health of the church you can't just base that on a few because that would be misdiagnosing the health of the church. You can't just base the health of the church upon the few leaders or the few pastors or the, the few nice people you meet at the door who welcome you to church, uh, the, the, the really devoted praise team members at church. You have to diagnose the health of the church based on the larger community. That's at least how Jesus looks at it because he says there are a few of the uh, the Christians in Sardis were faithful, and yet the church as a whole is dead. So another conclusion there is the bigger the church doesn't mean the healthier the church, and at the same time, the smaller the church doesn't mean healthier the church. Point is, it's not about the externals. It's not about the reputations. A good reputation with the world doesn't help us figure out any of this. It's a bad way to gauge. And, and this is so counterintuitive to us, to our Yelp review reading, Google review re reading, and Amazon review reading brains. Because a good reputation to us means something good in reality. In the spiritual world, Jesus is saying it's the total opposite. It can be the total opposite. That's why this is the most counterintuitive verdict of all the letters to the church. And if you think about it, what, what is really I mean, the meaning of having a good reputation anyway? What a good reputation from the world could simply mean is that you are simply inoffensive to your culture. It could just simply mean you're really good at not offending the world. And when I think about 
Okay, what is it that just does not offend anyone in our culture today? I, I can think of, I don't know, Will Smith. <laughs> he's, he's a, he has a pretty good reputation. He's, I don't think anyone's offended by him. Um, BTS, <laughs> they're pretty popular. Uh, bubble tea has pretty good reputation in our culture, right? Nobody hates on bubble tea, I don't think, right? And I'm saying this half tongue-in-cheek, but half seriously, none of these things are distinctly Christian things, are they? Uh, you can really be inoffensive to your culture and have nothing to do with Christianity. And so Jesus is saying, don't interpret a good reputation and being inoffensive to the world to mean somehow there's some spiritual authenticity in your relationship with God. Then what should be the true measurement of a spiritually living and active Christian and a church? What is the true measurement? We begin to find the answer to that uh, in verse 1 where it says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember what these symbols mean from chapter one. Uh, Seven symbolizes fullness or completion, right? It's the Apostle John's favorite number. So the seven stars, he says in chapter one, it refers to the whole church all throughout history. And the seven spirits of God refer to the fullness of the Holy Spirit, where he dwells in fullness, where he will never leave. In other words, the true claim upon the church comes from the one, Christ, who holds the seven stars in his hands and also who sends forth the seven spirits or the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Meaning, the church isn't truly the church based on its reputation from the world, but based on the pronouncement that comes from Christ, who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. Uh, what is a church? Don't ask the Christians in Sardis. Look to, look to Jesus and, and ask him. He has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And the other hard truth about this is that the church in Sardis they, they really cared more about the former than the latter, how they presented themselves before the world uh, than how they presented themselves before Christ, the true king of the church. Notice uh, the reputation here that Jesus points out is your reputation, their reputation, the reputation of the Christians in Sardis, not Christ's reputation. The church in Sardis has been building a reputation for the church in Sardis. They were not busy building a reputation for Christ. If you were to uh, bump into a regular citizen in the city of Sardis and then ask them, hey, uh, tell me something about the church, the Christians in Sardis. They would have been able to tell you, oh, yeah, they do this really well, they do that really well, they, they, they lead to this kind of societal flourishing, they got this down, they got that down, they make really nice events and make that really convenient for you. But if you were to ask them, tell me how they make much of Christ, his kingdom, and his mission to seek and to save the lost, there would have been silence. They had no reputation for Christ, only a reputation for themselves. In a way, they were hallowing their own name and glorying in their reputation in the city. Not occupied with Christ and his mission to the world. 
Now, a part of this is cultural too. Uh, commentators look back on the history of Sardis and point out that it was one of the historically richest, wealthiest cities in that region. Every other city had mixed reputations of a sort. Uh, Ephesus, Pergamum. It's like when you hear about people, you know, hear people talk about uh, New York City or LA, um, you get like a mixed review usually, right? There's some good, but there's also some bad. Like if you talk to me about LA, I'll tell you as a, you know, my experience growing up in LA, there's a lot of good, but there's a lot of bad as well. I'll give you a mixed review. On rare occasions though, you would, you would hear about a city that for the most part gets like a positive review from people. To me, a city like that is Edinburgh, United Kingdom. Uh, and if you've been to Edinburgh, you hated it, please let me know. Because as of now, the data I've collected about Edinburgh has been positive throughout. Uh, rich history, incredibly gorgeous landscape, very safe city, people are friendly, et cetera, et cetera. Sardis was such a reputable city. It has rich heritage, both historically and, and in terms of its um, modern city life representing Rome and Greco-Roman culture. It's a wealthy city. It's a very safe city. In a sense, if you lived in Sardis or you raised your family in Sardis, people would think, you've made it. You, you're living the life. Now, would that have affected the culture of the church in Sardis with, with their personal dreams and family aspirations and even the church's agenda have been shaped by the dreams and aspirations and agendas of the culture of the city of Sardis? Absolutely. And historically, what we find is that when the, when the church begins to resemble the city rather than the other way around, Christianity in that city and that country dies. That's historically true when you look at church history. And if you, if you think about the context of this in the, in the context of other letters, in this letter to Sardis, there's no mention of a Jezebel figure like there was in Thyatira, right? Seducing the church misleading the church. There's no synagogue of Satan like there was in Smyrna. No uh, Nicolaitans like in Ephesus and Pergamum. There's no warning against idolatry or sexual immorality. <laughs> the only problem for the church in Sardis is they had a good reputation in Sardis. Meaning they looked pretty much like the rest of their city. And that was enough to bring the church to a near-death experience. Resembling the city's life of comfort, wealth, security. These things painting over the church like makeup. And as they were thinking, hey, this makes us look good, Jesus is saying, no, that's just makeup on a corpse for an open casket funeral. That's a hard truth to swallow. There's, there's no idol worship. There's no sexual immorality. Yet the verdict is the most devastating, isn't it? 
you're dead. The pursuit of assimilating into the city of Sardis and all that it has to offer, that was enough to completely derail the church and hijack the church away from Christ and his mission to seek and to save the lost, for his people to deny themselves, carry their cross, and follow Jesus. So, so Jesus speaks the hard truth. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That's a hard pill to swallow. But it's when we seek to swallow and receive it, that's what leads us to the second point and makes the second point so important for us. How does Jesus bring them out of this? What is the way back to life? He starts with these two words in verse 2. Wake up. Okay, think about what that implies. If, if he says wake up, that means somebody's falling asleep or been sleeping, right? Sinclair Ferguson, the theologian, makes observation that in the Bible, when, when there's these metaphorical expressions or imageries of falling asleep, it's referring to spiritual slothfulness or spiritual laziness, which is a symptom of spiritual deadness. Spiritual slothfulness. Um, and he said, it is when we do all the things on the outside for the Lord or for the church or for the kingdom, acts of worship, acts of service, um, praise and deeds and offerings, when all of these things are disconnected from our heart of worship and our heart of devotion to the Lord, that's spiritual slothfulness. It's when all these things on the outside are tedious and they make you feel like you're simply being dragged along uh, to do things that your heart isn't really into doing. It's like being forced and dragged out of bed. I don't want to get out of bed. No, you have to get out of bed. Spiritual slothfulness. Uh, doing all the things that we do on the outside, disconnected from the outflow of the heart. And it makes the sound of God's voice calling us like, a, like the sound of a nagging parent, you know, nagging the teenager to get out of bed, go to school. And therefore, it's natural for us to feel like I can't spend 10 minutes with that nagging voice. I can't devote myself to daily meditations on a nagging voice. And so Ferguson says, one of the biggest signs of spiritual slothfulness is you have no appetite for God's word. It's like someone who has no appetite for food. And if you leave them there long enough, that proves deadly. And that was the state of the Christians in Sardis. And along those lines, the call to wake up, therefore, is to wake up from this slothfulness. And don't be content in your Christianity with what people say about you, what your pastor says about you, what other Christians say about you, or what your non-Christian friends say about you. You're so decent and moral and nice and upright. Wake up from that illusion of confusing, right? The life of comfort and good reputation with the life of spiritual health and blessedness in God because they could actually mean opposite things. You could have all that on the outside and still be dead on the inside. So Jesus says, 
wake up. It's not too different from waking up somebody, you know, when they're falling asleep at the wheel. Have you ever done that? Uh, you know what the crazy dangerous thing about falling asleep at the wheel is, other than you crash and die? The thing that really blows my mind, if you, and it'll maybe blow your mind if you think about it, is falling asleep at the wheel on the highway as you go 80 miles per hour feels good. It's so soothing. What a relaxing experience it is to fall asleep on the highway as you go 80 miles per hour. That's the crazy thing. It's so comfortable. It's so easy. It feels so right as you head towards your death. (laughs) And the most loving thing someone can do for you in that moment is not to look at you and go, you know, you look like you're really enjoying this. You look so relaxed. I'm just going to leave you alone. But to shake you out of that and say, wake up! That's what Jesus is doing. Wake up! Don't confuse that relaxation, that comfort, that wealth, that security and stability with spiritual health. Don't confuse the two. Because you're falling asleep at the wheel. And then, and then notice what he says next. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, he says, is about to die. Um, that's, in a strange way, a bit more help- hopeful than what we had heard just earlier. You're dead. There's a big difference between <laughs> you are dead, you are about to die. What happened in between these two phrases? Wake up. The two words of Christ saying, wake up. And you go from being dead to finding a pulse, to finding signs of life. And then strengthen. And the word is to reestablish, to rebuild or rehabilitate what remains. Wake up, strengthen, reestablish, rehabilitate what remains. What is it that remains? Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent, meaning return to it. Okay. Remember what you have received and heard. Strengthen that, reestablish that, be rehabilitated back into that. How? Through repentance. The good old spiritual practice and discipline of repentance. When the, when the scripture says, remember what you heard at first, it's most often referring to the message of the gospel that Jesus himself preached during his earthly ministry and his apostles preached thereafter him. And Jesus' gospel message was very simple from the very beginning. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Turn back. Receive this good news of God's kingdom coming down to earth through the Messiah. And how you can re-enter that kingdom, that city of God as well, and be reunited with your creator and your maker. And how Christ is the one offering 
that you can bring to God as an acceptable offering that makes you acceptable in the perfect city of God. Only through his suffering, only through his death, we get in to the perfect city of God, the, the truer and better Edinburgh. And, and he gives us citizenship there, and he gives us an eternal inheritance there, all through our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Remember that, right? You heard that. Remember that. And keep that. Continue in that. Persist in that. How? By repenting. Identifying how you've, you've gone off that track. You've, you've been, you need to make a U-turn because you've passed right through it. And reestablish yourself in this gospel, in this good news, by turning back, by repenting. Come back to the Lord through repentance. Because this is how our Savior leads us home, is continually feeding us His grace. Uh, repentance is where we taste the goodness of grace, the goodness of mercy. And the more we taste upon it, the more we draw closer to Him. And it says in Matthew 3.8, repentance, as we keep at it, it leads to fruitfulness. It leads to fruitfulness. And so repentance is not just a series of, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. And then, God, I'm sorry again. It's moving on from that also to saying, God, give me strength in this area in which I'm repenting in. One day at a time, transform me in this very area I'm repenting in. And that's where you find growth and fruitfulness. If you want to grow in any area, you've got to repent in that area. If you're not repenting in an area, you're probably not growing in that area. How do I grow? As a husband, I gotta repent a lot as a husband. How do I grow as a father? I gotta repent a lot as a father. How do I grow in loving difficult people? I gotta repent of failing at loving difficult people and ask God's strength for me to be able to do that a bit more today than I did yesterday and growing one day at a time in that way. Now, here's the thing. I've said quite a bit there about what we can do, but here's the thing. If we take away from this that the way back to God, the way back to spiritual life and health is by our doing things, then we're kind of missing the more important point here. We're going back to works, religious works. And we just said, you can do all the religious works and still be dead on the inside, right? So let's not go back to that, making that same mistake. Let's get the more important point here, okay? Because we're so good at jumping to that. <laughs> we're so good at jumping to, what must I do? Tell me what to do. And we miss the more important thing, and that is the one who is speaking. The way back to God is first and foremost identifying the one who is speaking and listening to him. It's not to download some impersonal to-do list and then trying to go do it. It's beholding the one who is speaking and giving him your full attention. And as he speaks his words, they will effectively, effectually bring you to life. The call itself is the way, not how well you respond to the call. Meaning, the way back to life is not so much a to-do list as it is a to-hear list. Um, the hope for the spiritually dead and dying is not in their doing, but in their hearing. Hearing more and more the words of Christ himself. To hear him say, wake up, strengthen what remains. 
remember in here, keep and repent. It's not the words themselves. It's who's saying it. Who you're listening to. This is how the great shepherd brings back his lost sheep, letting them hear his voice. I know my sheep and they know me, Jesus said. John chapter 10. My sheep will hear my voice and they will follow me. They'll hear and they'll follow. Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says, Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing. Faith is not choosing to hear or faith is not choosing to respond to what you hear. Faith is a gift that you receive as you hear. The power is not in how well you respond in faith. The power is in the words that you're hearing. The trouble is when we hear, wake up. You're falling asleep at the wheel, right? Strengthened. Remember and repent. We think, Okay, now it's about how good I perform that. It's about how good a Christian reputation I build through that. And you're back to square one. That's not the gospel, is it? That's not the gospel we heard. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. That's got to mean you're not the way. Your performance is not the way. Your performance is not the way to God. Jesus is the way. Resist the temptation to think that when you feel distant from God, that your love for God has grown cold, now your way back to God is you offering up a better version of yourself. Because in that, you make yourself the way. You make yourself the truth and the life. And you're saying, no one comes to the Father but through me. And my performance. And my reputation. The gospel is the complete opposite of that. The gospel is all about standing on one solid rock, Christ, hiding behind him as our rock of ages, boasting in that reputation, in that name, Christ. This is why when the Christians in Sardis are at their absolute lowest point, at their dying point, Jesus comes to them. He draws near to them. He revives them back to life through his words. His powerful, life-giving, reestablishing, rehabilitating words. He's bringing them back to life, all by His grace, before a single act of faith is performed by them. It's not their faith, it's not their works, it's not their reputation that somehow produce this gracious call from God, it's it's the other way around, isn't it? It's the gracious call of God to wake up that's producing faith, producing strength, producing rehabilitation and repentance and fruitfulness in the lives of these Christians who were dead. Remember how Jesus revived Lazarus? 
Lazarus was dead and buried. Right. And what was Jesus doing? What he wasn't doing was waiting outside the tomb for Lazarus to just kind of get his act together and come out and meet him and respond by faith. What does Jesus say? Lazarus, wake up, come out. And that's what revives him. His own words, effectually calling him out of the dead. And that's the voice of Jesus here saying to the church and starters, church, wake up. And that's what he's saying to us. NCA, wake up. Wake up. And the more we listen to this voice and give our attentive hearing to it and behold the one who is speaking, we will come back to life. We go from you are dead, now you have a pulse. He's not sitting outside our spiritual tomb with his arms folded waiting for us to get our act together, waiting for us to come to our senses and and choose him and recommit yourself to him and this time be really serious. He's saying, listen to my words, listen to my promises, believe in me and my, my choosing you, my reviving you, and don't make yourself the way, make me the way. This has always been the gospel that he preached. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And the apostle John says in 1 John 4, 19, we love him only because he first loved us. That is what we're to remember and get back to. That's our way back. Not a to-do list, but a person who speaks these words that effectually revives us. Simply put, the way back to Jesus is himself. He's not just the destination we're trying to reach. He is the path. His words give us faith. Listen to him and come back to life. And finally, at the end of it all, he says, I'm inviting you to hold on to one confession. At the end of it all, you're going to hold on to one confession. And that's the, that's the last point, the invitation to a confession. If you look at verses 4 and 5, and I'll be brief with this for the sake of time, uh, what you see there is this appearance of the white garments. Okay, what, What's that about? What are the white garments? What does that symbolize? The white part of the white garment symbolizes justification, right? cleansing, purification. It's, it's, how we, um, it's how the people of God receive the one reputation that actually matters, the reputation in God's court. And he says, you're innocent, you're justified. That's part of what this white garment symbolizes. But the language of white garments is also used often in the context of a wedding, uh, especially in Jesus' parable of the wedding uh, and the wedding garment in Matthew 22. It's having this white garment that gets us in the wedding. Without it, uh, we don't have access. Without, without it, we don't, we don't have right. We don't have the right to be there. Because here's what the white garment symbolizes beyond just our justification. It's along the lines of justification. It symbolizes that now what is outside is true of us on the inside as well. So what we're wearing as a white garment is, is truly representative of what's on the inside. Um, Lynn was telling me that kind of sounds a little bit like those mood rings you used to, you know, those used to be popular. So depending on your mood, the color would change, right? 
Maybe that works <laughs> as an illustration, right? Now the white garment symbolizes your true innocence on the inside and the outside. And that, when you look at the scripture, all throughout the scriptures, when it comes to this, this putting on of the white garment, it is always something that is put on the bride by the bridegroom. It's, it's not something that the bride has gone and sort of stitched together or purchased and worked hard for, but it's given to her. It's put on her. It's, and in that context, too, it's, it's they are, they're being clothed this way rather than clothing themselves this way. And that is to say, this is, this is not something that we as the people of God are, are trying to dress ourselves in, but it is Christ giving us his white garment. Just as he gave up his robe at his crucifixion, in his giving up of his robe, in him becoming naked and ashamed, we are clothed and we are covered in our shame. That's what clothes us. And notice, therefore, the invitation that is found here at the end to hear this confession it is not, right, the confession we find in the end is not the bride's confession that is the most final and decisive. It is not your confession or my confession. It is not the church's confession. The, the one making a confession here in the final wedding scene, at the end of the world, the start of the new, new world, it's Christ's confession, isn't it? Him saying, I will confess his name. Right? The name of my sheep, the name of my church before my father and the angels. The final invitation here is to hold fast to the confession of, of him, what he says of you, rather than what you are saying of him. What you say of him matters. Whether you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior absolutely matters. What this means is there's something mattering even more ultimately, and that is what Jesus is confessing of you. At the end of it all, what you're holding on to is that. Him holding fast to you. The bridegroom holding fast to his bride, saying, I'm not going to let you go, and I'm bringing you home. The, I think the comfort this, uh, this would have brought to the, the Christians in Sardis who are now barely, find, barely finding a pulse and being rehabilitated spiritually would have been so comforting because because. Spiritual rehabilitation is a long process. And they're bound to go through these ups and downs in the future. And what Jesus is, in a sense, reminding them here of is whenever you experience doubt or struggle in your assurance of salvation, if you ever wonder, am I, am I really saved? Am I worthy of being received into the kingdom of God? Right. Turn your thoughts away from how well you're doing, what you are confessing of God, what you're feeling of him, and turn your thoughts instead to what God is saying of you, what he has promised you, and how faithful he is to those promises. For every one look at your doubts, your skepticism, your lack of assurance, take 10 looks at God and his promises and rest in that. Let his words be your anchor. Let him be the way. And turn your eyes away from, from yourself until the day you actually find yourself at, at the wedding, being wedded to the bridegroom. Let the hard truth sink in. 
look inward. Is there spiritual slothfulness? Listen to him. Wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Rebuild. And as you do so, don't put your assurance in how well you're doing. Put your assurance in how faithful he remains to you still. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for speaking the hard truth to us even. It may be difficult to, to receive it. But in this, we know your love is not shallow. Your love is not distant but close. And you look inward. You, you see through us and you tell us the deeper things of us that no one else can see, no one else can tell us. We thank you for that. Help us to remember, Lord, that the way back to you is not our striving and our doing, but our, our listening, our hearing, and beholding the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to take gradual steps in being strengthened, reestablished, so that what is true on the outside is true on the inside. What is true on the inside is true on the outside. And Lord, may we rest ultimately in the assurance we find in your words and your works, not in ourselves. Help us to look to Jesus as our faithful bridegroom who holds fast to us through it all. And help us to always fix our eyes on him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.